The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. He doesn't like being called Moscow Mitch. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, August 1st, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. The boy who cried wolf so many times no one believed him when a wolf actually appeared is a lesson in alarmism. When you're constantly sounding an alarm, as many of us have over these past two and a half years, the alarm becomes background noise and people stop paying attention. People start underestimating the chance there might really be a wolf, which of course is the perfect time for a wolf to actually appear. It was a week ago today that we learned for the first time that Russian hackers had gotten into voting systems in all 50 of our states in 2016. Besides stealing political emails and riling us up on social media, Russia was also poking around in our state voter registration computers, according to a bipartisan report from Congress. Senate investigators found no evidence that votes were changed, but that, quote, Russian cyber actors were in a position to delete or change voter data. That means the votes of either party can be wiped out by simply removing voters from the registration rolls. The Russians were stalking those registration lists, looking for weaknesses in security. The public first learned of Russia's attack on the voting systems in a few states, but October 7, 2016 was one of those crazy busy news days. The story got buried beneath the release of the Democratic emails that Russia had stolen and the videotape in which Trump explains how he likes to grab women. The Russian attack fell to third place in the media stack of stories that day. Then it was just a few states. Now we know it's all 50. The Senate report says U.S. officials were too reserved in their warnings to the states in 2016 and that the states either responded anemically or, as reported here in 2016, Republican-led states resisted help in shoring up their security because that help had been offered by the Obama administration. State election officials either didn't realize the seriousness of the threat or they didn't believe a word of the warning that a big bad wolf was at the door. The report also warns that the U.S. is still vulnerable to Russian cyber attacks now through Election Day 2020. The Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the Russian attack is heavily redacted. There's so much black ink for protecting national security, even the recommendations for protecting our vulnerable voting systems are concealed in these documents. But the report recommends a paper trail, paper ballots, and or paper backups for voter registration systems, and of course, better cybersecurity. New Jersey, to name one state, cannot afford that upgrade. But Mitch McConnell says Congress and the president have done enough already. It was a week ago yesterday that we heard Robert Mueller say that the Russian cyber attack is underway even as we sit here and that it will continue through the 2020 election. And he said other countries are gearing up cyber attacks on the U.S. as well. Unless we do something about it. In the 24 hours that followed Mueller's warning, the Republican-led Senate voted no four times on beefing up our election security, a bill already approved by the House and a package of three other bills with the same goal. This is not a Democratic issue, a Republican issue. This is an issue of patriotism, of national security, of protecting the very integrity of American democracy, something so many of our forebears died for. And what do we hear from the Republican side? Nothing. That quote hails from Democratic leader Chuck Schumer after the release of that report from the Senate Intelligence Committee 
currently controlled by Republicans. It was that committee reporting to the public that the Russians had hacked their way into all 50 states in 2016. And the committee gave us that news one day after Mueller warned the Russians are still attacking. And that was just the first in a series of reports we can expect from the Senate Intelligence Committee. The next report will be about Russia's social media interference, which may very well have changed votes. The report after that will be about the 200-some contacts between Russia and the Trump campaign. Cut to the president, who reportedly sees public discussion of the Russian attack as questioning the legitimacy of his electoral college victory. Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, eliminated the job of White House cybersecurity coordinator. Cut to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who doesn't see what all the fuss is about. He says Congress and the president have already done enough, $380 million to be divided by 50 states to fix their own voting security, even though the report from his own Senate committee says not nearly enough has been done. This is how McConnell has earned the title Russian Asset and his newest nickname, Moscow Mitch. As you might expect, the turtle jokes roll right off McConnell's back. This didn't. The nickname went viral as a hashtag that could ultimately force him to take action on election security. Hashtag Moscow Mitch. A billboard went up alongside an interstate highway in Kentucky featuring McConnell's face and the words Putin's Mitch. In the short term, the nicknames left him short-tempered. McConnell took to the floor of the Senate to lash back. I will not be intimidated, he bellowed, a clear sign that he already had been. Even Trump jumped to McConnell's defense in his own intellectually handicapped way. Mitch McConnell, he said, is a man that knows less about Russia and Russian influence than even Donald Trump, and I know nothing, said the president, speaking in third person. Twitter suspended a conspiracy theory promoting account on Tuesday by retweeting a meme from a QAnon account, Trump, it actually called Twitter's attention to the account, which also had a post saying the Clintons had tortured and sacrificed children, the ongoing Pizzagate conspiracy theory. But the meme Trump had retweeted read, Democrats are the true enemy of America. Later on C-SPAN, Trump said that while he has not much regret about his 43,000 tweets, quote, a lot of the times the bigger problem is the retweets. You know, he continued, you retweet something that sounds good, but it turns out to be from a player that's not the best player in the world, and that sort of causes a problem. Despite what sounds like a revelation, Trump had that group of professional trolls and political strategists up to the White House recently to plot their 2020 online strategy. According to her Twitter account, Alicia Hernan is a wife, mother, and lover of peace. According to her profile pic, she is blonde, wears big round eyeglasses, and sometimes turtleneck sweaters. Four and a half months ago, she was tweeting a congressman from Hawaii, and she wrote about Trump. That stupid moron, she tweeted, doesn't get that by creating bad guys, spewing hate-filled words, and creating fear of others, his message is spreading to fanatics around the world. Or maybe he does, she wrote. But you won't find Alicia on Twitter anymore. Her account is one of more than 7,000 removed by Twitter this year because there is no such person as Alicia Hernan. She is now what we call a sock puppet. But the hand inside the sock wasn't Russian. It was Iranian. And Iran had its hands up the socks of a fake bodybuilder in Michigan, a fake Harvard student, and others. 
nearly 1,700 fake Iranian accounts were removed by Twitter just last month. Iran has already developed the ability and the infrastructure to conduct a Russian-style influence attack on the U.S. in the run-up to next year's election. Iran is a presence on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google+, and on some phony websites as well. It's even gotten letters to the editor published in newspapers in Virginia and Texas. And as we could see from the phony Alicia Hernan account, Iran, unlike Russia, opposes Trump. Also, unlike Russia, Iran does not focus on dividing the American people, just pushing its own politics, but that could turn quickly. The Saudis, with a focus on using social media bots, are pro-Trump. We're staring at a 2020 campaign rife with disinformation from Russia and now Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Venezuela, and of course China. And we're looking at disinformation programs from within the United States, judging from the recent meeting between cyber trolls and the president in the White House. The day after Mueller's warning and the day of the release of that Senate Intelligence Committee report, Mitch McConnell decided doing nothing was the best course of action. He'd have you pay no attention to the former special counsel's stern words that the Russian cyber attack, quote, deserves the attention of every American and that much more needs to be done. He would have you pay no attention to his intelligence committee's assertion that urgent steps are needed to replace our outdated and vulnerable voting systems. Mitch McConnell, his Republicans in the Senate, and his president are all blocking any move to keep Russia, Iran, and others from taking their cyber attack even further this time. And this is not the first time the Senate Majority Leader has blocked attempts to improve election security. He's blocked a bill that would also require social media companies to disclose who's buying the ads so we can spot the foreigners. He's blocked a bipartisan bill to make for better communication between our national intelligence agencies and our state election officials. He's blocked a bill that would slap tough new sanctions on Russia for its ongoing cyber crimes and a bill that would automatically sanction any country or any entity that attacks a U.S. election. He's blocked some of these bills more than once. McConnell has ignored the FBI, the National Intelligence Director, Special Counsel Robert Mueller, and now his own Senate Intelligence Committee. Mitch McConnell is doing Russia's bidding. So the big question is, why? The Kentucky senator who rules the Senate is up for re-election this year, and he's vulnerable. A little outside help could indeed be helpful to Mitch McConnell. McConnell leads the Senate with a president who will enable the shrinking of government with tax breaks for the rich. He'd like to protect that synergy. McConnell has even said that some of the election reforms being proposed, including paper ballots, are one-sided and only benefit Democrats. He says the bills being proposed are from the, quote, same folks who hyped up a conspiracy theory about Trump and Russia. But it's not just about votes with Mitch. It's about money. Just since the first of this year, McConnell's gotten a string of campaign donations from the top four lobbyists in the country who represent the voting machine industry. David Cohen and Brian Wilde, who lobby for a voting machine company called Hyatt Faber Shrek, have given McConnell $3,000 since the first of the year. Emily Curlin and Jennifer Olson, who lobby for the voting machine company Peck Madigan Jones, have kicked in four grand in the first half of 2019. With his bespectacled eyes, McConnell sees votes and dollar signs. Mitch McConnell is apparently blind, however, to what was once known as patriotism. 
one of the fiercest interactions last week between Robert Mueller and the Republicans in that House intel hearing was between Mueller and Congressman John Ratcliffe of Texas. Ratcliffe, to the special counsel's face, slammed the Mueller report as 180 pages of decisions that weren't reached about potential crimes that weren't charged or decided. It was Ratcliffe who told Mueller he had no right to say he hadn't exonerated Trump. The president said Ratcliffe should have been presumed innocent till proven guilty. Donald Trump is not above the law, said Ratcliffe, but he damn sure shouldn't be below the law, which is where volume two of the report puts him. That certainly appears to have made an impression on the president, who has now named John Ratcliffe as his new national intelligence director. Ratcliffe believes both Mueller and the FBI have been biased against Trump all along and that the real problem was Hillary Clinton and that all of that should be investigated. In taking on Mueller in last week's hearing, Ratcliffe had passed his audition and got himself nominated for the job. All he needs now is the confirmation of Mitch McConnell's Senate. If he gets the job, Ratcliffe would be the first intelligence director in modern history with zero experience in the intelligence field. He's been on the Intelligence Committee just six months. That's it. He would be the least qualified candidate to ever get that job. And if he does get the job, it will be because, like William Barr, Ratcliffe has been chosen to protect this president. Deputy National Intelligence Director Sue Gordon will be the acting director for any gap between Ratcliffe's arrival and the departure of the man he'd be replacing if the Senate confirms him. The person who currently holds the position of Director of National Intelligence is Dan Coates, the former Indiana lawmaker who's advised and clashed with the president for the past two years. He got his two weeks notice this week, but Coates has seen this day coming for months. Coates clashed with the president on Russia, Iran, and the U.S. election system that carries a target on its back. Coates is admired by Democrats for, in his words, speaking truth to power. Like so many others, Coates has been replaced by someone who does not trust the agency he would now lead, replaced by someone chosen for their loyalty to Trump, not for their impartial professionalism. Robert Mueller testified last Wednesday. Trump was still raging about it on Twitter well into the weekend and beyond, but by the weekend, there was a much bigger buzz about impeachment. Democrats had filed a lawsuit asking for secret material from one of Robert Mueller's grand juries. In explaining why they needed this secret grand jury evidence, Democrats used the word impeachment 67 times. Last week, unaware he was standing next to a bogus and unflattering presidential seal, Trump told conservative high school students about Article 2 of the Constitution and how it gives presidents powers, quote, at a level nobody's ever seen before. This week, we heard about Article 1 of the Constitution from House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. We are using our full Article 1 powers, said Nadler, to investigate the conduct of the president and to consider what constitutional remedies there are. Among other things we will consider are, obviously, recommending articles of impeachment. He quickly added, we may recommend, we may not. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi quickly clarified, we will proceed when we have what we need, not one day sooner. But the words have now been spoken by Nadler and 76 times in the Democrats' lawsuit to get Mueller's grand jury material. And Judiciary Committee member Eric Swalwell said that lawsuit, quote, is an impeachment investigation whether we should recommend articles of impeachment. The number of House members favoring impeachment had, since Mueller's testimony, 
increased to 117, and Democrats were nearly evenly divided. Those who thought Mueller had failed them and that it's time to move on for the sake of re-election, and those who believe Mueller gave more reason than ever to go forward and that Congress has a constitutional mandate to do exactly that. A half dozen Democrats came out for impeachment because of Mueller's testimony about the report that almost no one has read. So that night, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi loosened the reins and told Democratic lawmakers they could say what they wanted about impeachment now, so long as they didn't make it all about that and so long as they did not attack their fellow Democrats. Even Pelosi was by then pointing out that the third article of impeachment against Richard Nixon was obstruction of justice. It was Pelosi who okayed the impeachment mentions in that lawsuit. For those whose moods had been darkened by the Russian attack and our failure to respond to it, it seemed as though the sunshine had begun to peek through. Democrats have already made a half dozen legal maneuvers, including that lawsuit for grand jury material, and this week is proving even more dramatic with a pending lawsuit against former White House counsel Don McGahn to force him to testify for Congress. If that lawsuit succeeds, Congress will ask that it also be able to question others being held back by Trump's executive privilege claims. And the testimony of McGahn, Jeff Sessions, and others could give impeachment rocket fuel. Although the House Judiciary Committee continues its work as we speak, Democratic lawmakers are mostly back in their districts now for a summer break. Many plan to ask the voters in those districts how they feel about impeachment at this point. Many others are already itching to get back to Washington to keep the impeachment momentum going. Democrats in Congress believe one way to find out if Trump is compromised financially is to get a look at his tax returns. Trump continues to hide his taxes from the voters, unlike any president of the past four decades, and in spite of promises during the campaign to eventually make them public. Instead, Trump doubled down on refusing to reveal his tax forms. The more he fights the idea of voters seeing his finances, the louder the question, what's he hiding? Republicans in Congress are outraged that the House Ways and Means Committee has asked and now sued in federal court to see Trump's tax documents. Republicans have countered that lawsuit, saying that such a request is unprecedented. It isn't. As part of its complete stonewalling of congressional investigations, the White House is standing fast on ignoring this congressional request. In 1973, the Joint Congressional Committee on Taxation requested Richard Nixon's tax returns... They were delivered to the committee that day. Earlier this month, the House Oversight Committee asked the White House for emails and other electronic communications to and from Trump's daughter, Ivanka, and separately, communications to and from her husband, Jared Kushner. The Presidential Records Act requires that all White House communications be recorded for history. It's the law. The chairman of the Oversight Committee says the committee has direct evidence that multiple high-level White House officials have violated that law. What we do not yet know, he says, is why these White House officials were attempting to conceal these communications. Last year, the Washington Post reported that Ivanka had sent hundreds of emails and conducted White House business using a private account and using encrypted messaging apps. And now... The chairman of the House Oversight Committee is subpoenaing those hidden White House communications and also now investigating Saudi Arabian influence on this president. That chairman is Congressman Elijah Cummings, whose district covers about half the city of Baltimore, Maryland. 
the half that has the higher than average number of college graduates, the part with a median income of about $61,000 a year, the part that's 40% white. In 2015, when Trump was getting close to running for president, there was vandalism and looting on the streets of Baltimore in the wake of the death of Freddie Gray in police custody. It was nearly 1 a.m. when Trump tweeted, Our great African-American president hasn't exactly had a positive impact on the thugs who are so happily destroying Baltimore. He told Obama to go to Baltimore and fix it. I would fix it fast, Trump tweeted, just two months before he would ride down that escalator at Trump Tower to announce his candidacy. But more than two years into his presidency, Trump has not fixed Baltimore or much of anything. Instead, he has now heaped the blame for Charm City's troubles on Congressman Elijah Cummings, who, as you may recall, is running multiple investigations into the president, including one into the cruelty of Trump's immigration crackdown, especially the cruelty inflicted upon children. Four years later, Trump's not making any friends in Baltimore, which gave us Edgar Allan Poe, Upton Sinclair, H.L. Mencken, Tom Clancy, John Waters, and Babe Ruth. As Trump himself pointed out recently, it's where the Continental Army rammed the ramparts, took over the airports, and did everything it had to do. But now, Trump was tweeting over the weekend that Baltimore is a disgusting rat-infested mess where no human being would want to live. The president didn't mention the thousands of apartments his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, owns in the Baltimore area or how those properties have been cited for mold, maggots, and mice. Trump forged ahead, calling Baltimore filthy and corrupt. And he said Congressman Cummings has done little to deal with the city's problems, including its crime rate, calling Cummings' district the worst in the USA. He called Cummings a brutal bully. When the leaders of Baltimore want to see the city rise again, Trump tweeted, I am in a very beautiful oval-shaped office waiting for your call. Trump was once again saying he's the guy to fix Baltimore, even though he's done nothing for the city after two and a half years in that beautiful oval-shaped office. In the wake of his racist attacks on congresswomen of color, what he has done is insult and attack a mostly black American city and the African-American congressman it elected. Perhaps Baltimore should go back to where it came from or be deported. Democrats had plenty to say, not the least of whom is Baltimore's Mayor Jack Young, who called Trump a disappointment to the people of Baltimore and to our country and to the world. The headline in the Baltimore Sun didn't hold back. Better to have a few rats than to be one, it read. In the text, the opinion piece reminded everyone that Cummings' disgusting district included Johns Hopkins University Hospital. It's the home to Social Security, helping the retired and the disabled and so much more. It's where House Republicans hold their retreat every year. The Baltimore Sun's editorial board called Trump the most dishonest man to ever occupy the Oval Office, the mocker of war heroes, the gleeful grabber of women's private parts, the serial bankrupter of businesses, the useful idiot of Vladimir Putin, and the guy who insisted there are good people among murderous neo-Nazis that he's still not fooling most Americans into believing he's even slightly competent. The cheeky editorial ends the way it began, saying it's better to have vermin in your neighborhood than to be one. The piece was actually written by the Baltimore Sun's Peter Jensen, who says he wanted to speak for those who've been insulted by Trump but have too small a voice to respond. He says he did it for them. Didn't hurt his job at the paper, either. Subscriptions to the Baltimore Sun doubled Saturday, along with its website traffic. 
Trump was on Twitter saying his comments were not about race. And his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, was on the Sunday talk show saying it wasn't about race. But on Monday, Trump continued his attacks on African-Americans, adding longtime sparring partner the Reverend Al Sharpton to his list while continuing to insult veteran Congressman Elijah Cummings. And yesterday, he sent out his housing secretary, Ben Carson, to back up the boss's insults. A lot of good things in Baltimore, said Carson, but a lot of bad things, too. Carson's outdoor news conference in Charm City was to have been in front of a church. The pastor told him to get off the property, forcing Carson to speak to reporters in a grassy alleyway. And as we were reminded this week, Donald Trump is not our first racist president. The National Archives released 1971 audio recordings this week of a phone call to President Nixon from former California Governor Ronald Reagan, who would himself one day be president. Reagan was hot under the collar about the U.N. vote to recognize China and about brown-skinned representatives from other U.N. nations celebrating that vote. To see those monkeys from those African countries, said Reagan, damn them, they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. Nixon laughed out loud, a belly laugh. It's on the tape. Nixon would go on to repeat what he'd heard from Reagan or variations of it in two subsequent recorded conversations. In a phone call to his friend Bibi Rebozo, Nixon referred to them hanging by their tails from trees. But after he got off the phone with Reagan, Nixon called his Secretary of State to also grumble about the U.N.'s decision to let in China. And in the second call later to Secretary of State William Rogers, quoting Nixon, Reagan said he saw these cannibals and was practically sick to his stomach, to which Nixon added, this bunch of people who don't even wear shoes yet kicking the United States in the teeth. As President Ronald Reagan went on to create the term welfare queen, and to embrace the apartheid government of South Africa. We've seen a lot of never-befores in this administration. This is a case of seen it before. The National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. is a church for people of all faiths. It is traditionally non-denominational. It is traditionally non-partisan, and still is. But this week, the nation's church spoke up after what it called the racial rhetoric from the President of the United States. It called Trump's words dangerous, noting that violent words lead to violent actions. The National Cathedral Statement said that Americans who remain silent are complicit. In a statement, the bishops and theologians asked, when will Americans have enough? Have we no decency? And then in the midst of Trump's racist attacks and cruel immigration policies, shots rang out at a food festival not far from San Francisco. The Garlic Festival at Gilroy, California has appeared every summer since 1979 and is billed as the world's greatest summer food fest with its proceeds always going to charity. This year's event had cops and security on hand and was surrounded by a fence and people entered the festival grounds through metal detectors. The young man in military-style clothing who would kill three people there, including a six-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl, had cut his way through a fence at the back of the festival grounds. We don't know for sure the gunman's motive, but he had recently commented on social media indicating he had taken up white supremacist views. Investigators found other confirming evidence of that in his apartment. There's a lot of this going around these days from Gilroy, California to Washington, D.C., we will never know the gunman's true motive because he was shot and killed by police who were armed only with pistols against the military-style weapon this 19-year-old had crossed into Nevada to buy. More first responders saving countless lives. Still at least 15 people had been wounded or injured trying to escape the slaughter and three people, including two children, had died.
President Trump had no comment. But Democratic presidential hopefuls, one after another, called for action in lieu of thoughts and prayers. Washington, D.C. has now joined New York State investigating the National Rifle Association and its charitable foundation. D.C.'s attorney general is subpoenaing financial records from both groups suspected of violating the district's nonprofit act. The NRA says it's cooperating with both the D.C. and New York investigations, saying it has nothing to hide. Investigations are also underway on Capitol Hill into the NRA's ties with Russia. It was also this past week we heard that the Trump Justice Department under Attorney General William Barr is reinstating the federal death penalty. It also ordered the scheduling of executions for five death row inmates, the first federal executions in 16 years. To help sell the idea, Barr's Justice Department chose as its first five executions men all convicted of killing children. See if the liberals object to that. The men are to die the way they would in Georgia, Missouri, and Texas by lethal injection of a single drug, pentobarbital, as opposed to the three-drug cocktail you've heard much about. Until now, capital punishment was nearly a relic of a bygone era. There were 98 executions in 1999. There were 25 last year. 21 states have abolished the death penalty. The latest, New Hampshire, outlawed it this year. The death penalty is all but eliminated in California and Pennsylvania thanks to moratoriums by their governors and in North Carolina by court order. Other states are having trouble getting the drugs. Just over half of Americans say they support capital punishment. None of the Democratic presidential hopefuls do. And that brings us to this week's second round of overpopulated Democratic debates, this time with CNN promoting and presenting them like a reality show in an embarrassing bid to work its way out of third place in the cable news ratings wars. We will leave it to your own likes and dislikes among the candidates, but Salon.com's Bob Seska would like a word with you about one or two of them. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Just so we're clear, the goal of the Russian attacks, and soon the attacks from a roster of copycats, is to manufacture chaos inside the United States, undermining the stability of Western-style democracy, thus paving the way for Russian dominance around the globe. And as we've all witnessed for the past three or four years, Donald Trump was the first president to become an agent of Russian chaos. The concept was both simple and colossal. Russia proceeded to use hacked documents and social media agitprop to artificially boost Trump's prospects, while undermining the prospects of an infinitely more serious political leader, Hillary Clinton. In addition to cultivating Trump since the late 1980s, Russia noticed in 2014-ish that Americans were ripe for exploitation along these lines due to our Pavlovian affinity for social media. And then with a hefty nudge from Russia, the Red Hat supporters emerged and legitimized Trump despite his catastrophic unseriousness. Russia needed a populist weirdo to manifest its chaos plan, and voters grabbed up the fringe weirdness with both fists. I mean, who better to walk up to the board game of presidential politics and fling it across the room than a screeching TV celebrity with a big mouth, stumpy fingers, and a well-known appetite for mayhem. After a couple of decades, Russia knew exactly who they were backing. And surprise, surprise, it worked. 62 million voters fell for the garish liar with the clown makeup and hair, the dilettante poser with zero knowledge of how government works beyond the bastardized showbiz version of politics seen on Fox News Channel. 
We all know and recognize how it went down. With every new day, we're learning more and more about how Russia pulled it off and how both Vladimir Putin and the aforementioned copycats in China, Iran, and Saudi Arabia will try again in 2020. Yet despite the Mueller report and all of the pulse-pounding revelations, we're still painfully susceptible to social media manipulation, and the overseas active measures are only growing in sophistication as time rolls on. Next up, enter Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. The anti-vaxxer, woo-woo author, and crunchy self-help guru is absolutely ripe to be the next chaos agent. And unless I'm badly mistaken, Russia and the others are lining up to amplify the insanity online and elsewhere. During the NBC News debates last month, I wondered out loud whether Williamson would birth her own litter of bros this time around. And after watching the Tuesday night CNN debate, it might actually be happening. Every time Williamson spoke, the live audience erupted in cheers, while some observers on Twitter who ought to know better effusively praised her, deploying their misplaced kudos to countless millions of followers. Everyone from Ezra Klein to New York Magazine's Olivia Nutzi to Maria Shriver to The Atlantic's Jonathan Merritt gushed over Williamson, while many others casually discussed her remarks as if she actually belonged on the presidential stage. In other words, this inexperienced anti-science political tourist has been granted enough legitimacy to form the basis of a movement, a movement that Russia will absolutely attempt to turbo boost with everything it's got. It's also notable that professional trolls like Donald Trump Jr. and Ben Shapiro thought Williamson won the debate. Likewise, Matt Drudge's online poll, which was likely inflated by foreign trolls, also showed Williamson as the winner. This is how the chaos begins. Find a crazy-eyed populist who has no business anywhere near the presidency, yet possesses a growing grassroots movement duped by a shallow feel-good message. Then amplify her candidacy on social media while undermining her opponents and sit back and watch as the poop-flinging and unseriousness commences. And even if foreign cyber attacks were a non-factor in our elections, Williamson should still have no place on the stage, especially in the churning wake of Donald Trump. We shouldn't have any appetite whatsoever for presidential candidates who, one, haven't ever won an election before, two, have zero political experience outside what they see on cable, and three, have no practical ideas about how to govern 320 million people while serving as commander-in-chief of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. It's madness that anyone, politically savvy or otherwise, would even dare to boost the presidential aspirations of someone who's better off hosting a psychedelic podcast from her basement. If you dig her ideas, buy her stupid books. She's an author, not a president. That should be obvious. The Democrats who cheered for Williamson at the CNN debate ought to be ashamed of themselves, especially after reading about some of her kookier ideas. But social media and cable news prefer the freak show, I suppose. Whomever works as a Facebook meme can suddenly become a viable leader in this age of reality show creepazoids and online cult followings. As Aaron Sorkin wrote in The American President, we have serious problems to solve, and we need serious people to solve them. Williamson or Andrew Yang, another billionaire CEO candidate, are absolutely not the people to fix the loopholes that allowed Trump's rise to power. Voting for more clowns will only worsen the crisis, even if the clown has a D after her name. 
don't fall for it the way the Red Hats fell for it. We ought to be way, way better than that. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon with Jody Hamilton and David Ferguson. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Interest rates are going down a quarter point. So says the Federal Reserve in a surprise announcement, a surprise because the economy, by some measures, is doing well. But members of the Federal Reserve Board say it's like a flu shot, a preventive medicine to head off whatever's happening in the economic slowdowns of Europe, China, and other countries. But they say it's also to head off the expected negative effects of Trump's trade wars on both consumers and business. Interest rate adjustments by the Fed usually come in pairs, so... So this would appear to be the first of two or three as the Fed, as usual, proceeds cautiously. Wall Street's predicting that interest rates will go even lower in a third rate cut from about two and a quarter percent now down to about one and three quarters percent. Trump wants a big drop in interest rates and has been pressuring the Fed to do just that as he tries to protect an economy that looks good on the surface. Some think the Fed is caving a bit to that pressure. Yesterday's vote to lower interest rates came from a very divided board. The 18-year-old American citizen who was held for over three weeks by U.S. border agents is suing the federal government. Francisco Galicia of Edinburgh, Texas, says he lost 26 pounds while in a crowded space he shared with five dozen other men. He says he was denied a lawyer and a toothbrush and a bed, and access to a shower or even a toilet. Galicia says it was so bad he considered self-deporting, allowing himself, as a citizen, to be deported to Mexico, even though he was born in the USA. When Francisco Galicia was apprehended at a checkpoint, he showed his birth certificate, state ID card, and social security card to the Border Patrol officers. The border agents believed the papers to be fake and told Galicia he had no rights. His family might not have gotten Francisco back if his brother Marlon, who doesn't have papers, hadn't allowed himself to be deported. It was Marlon calling his family from Mexico to explain to their mother what had happened to Francisco and him. Francisco and his mom are now trying to get Marlon back. In the meantime, quoting Francisco Galicia, who, as an American citizen, spent 23 days in a cell having committed no crime, It's one thing to see these conditions on TV, he says. It's another to go through them. This past week, the Washington Post reported that customs agents and the FBI have been scanning state driver's license databases, mining the photos of millions of Americans without their knowledge or consent. They do it for surveillance, even with people not charged with any crime. Neither the legislatures of those states nor the Congress in Washington have authorized this photo mining. And now that the word is out, thanks again to real journalists, Democrats and Republicans in elected offices have begun to object. Vermont has already stopped using facial recognition technology after four years running scans of its photos for ICE. In Texas, Florida, and other states, lawmakers are considering bills that would let undocumented immigrants apply for driver's licenses. Some of these states allow the feds to access those databases, meaning... The driver's license photos will be reviewed by immigration officials who have the power to deport. 
It was a year ago that this president announced an official end to family separations. No more ripping babies from their mothers. No more breaking up families. Except it didn't work out that way. The ACLU Tuesday told us that the Trump administration has snatched more than 900 more kids from their families ever since a court order more than a year ago ordering the separations to virtually stop. Sometimes it happens during a traffic stop. Immigration officials deciding a parent is a threat to the child's welfare because of a traffic ticket or some other minor infraction. Children have even been taken from their parents for having a wet diaper. The ACLU says the Trump administration is using a loophole to get around that court order to stop breaking up families. The Obama administration only separated families in instances where it was clear that the parent was an actual danger to the child. The Trump government has been holding four children from their families for nearly a year, just over 300 days now. The average child separation is 68 days. 481 kids in U.S. custody are under the age of 10. 40% of the kids are toddlers under the age of 5. The ongoing child separations, despite the court order, despite Trump's announcement, have actually picked up pace in recent months. Of the 911 children ripped from their families over the past year, about 200 were taken by the administration in just the first two months of this year. For now, the Supreme Court says Trump can use $2.5 billion in military money to build part of his border wall. The Sierra Club and several border towns had filed a lawsuit arguing that the use of military money for a wall is illegal, a violation of federal law. The court's conservative majority didn't rule on that question. It ruled that the parties bringing the lawsuit lacked legal standing, that they were unable to show why they would be harmed by Trump's plan based on a shaky emergency declaration. The court seemed to be saying that only Congress could bring such a lawsuit. But the ACLU says this is not over. It says other legal efforts to stop Trump's plan will continue. In April, May, and June of this year, the Democrats running for election or re-election to Congress have raised more money for their campaigns than the Republicans they're running against. Even the most promising Republicans challenging sitting Democrats are running behind in fundraising. As a group, Democrats running for the House in 2020 have raised nearly $18 million more than their Republican opponents. Thanks to a green wave of donations last year, a blue wave swept across the House. Democrats gained 40 seats. At the moment, they rule the House with a 235 to 197 majority. The House currently has two vacancies and one independent former Republican Justin Amash, who's ready to vote for impeachment. He's one of the 117. Already more than a year before the election, at least 11 House Republicans say they're not running for re-election. Danielle Stella is one of the Republicans hoping to unseat a Democrat in the 2020 election. The Democrat in question is Minnesota Congressman Elon Omar, one of the women of color Trump told to go back where she came from. Danielle Stella figured she had a shot at replacing Omar and being another voice and another vote in Congress for Trump. That dream appears to have been dashed now by a Guardian newspaper exclusive. The news outlet reports that Stella was arrested twice this year for felony shoplifting, taking 2300 bucks worth of stuff from a Target store, 279 items in all, 
and 40 bucks worth of food from a grocery store. She calls pristine Minneapolis the crime capital of our country. She subscribes to the QAnon conspiracy theory that Trump is battling a global cabal of elite liberal pedophiles. And now she claims she is not guilty of felony shoplifting. Stella, who also failed to show for a court hearing, says she does not remember much about Target because of her post-traumatic stress disorder. She had been arrested before for shoplifting 40 bucks worth of flea and tick spray for cats. Ten years ago, she pleaded guilty to driving under the influence and fleeing a police officer. Danielle Stella is, however, still running for Congress as the Republican to take on Elon Omar and to support Donald Trump. It would be very difficult for Democrats to also win control of the Senate in 2020, but a demographics expert tells the New York Times it can be done. Simply put, the way for Democrats to win the Senate is with a massive turnout and a blue wave even more powerful than what we saw in 2018. The generic vote gives Democrats nearly an eight-point advantage over Republicans. And while Democrats have only a dozen Senate seats to defend in 2020, while Republicans have to protect 34 up-for-grab seats. But this polarized nation has more red states than blue, 23 to 20, plus seven purple states, battleground states like Florida. The racial divide exacerbated by Trump could lock in that red state advantage. And the red state advantage gives Republicans 46 seats in the Senate, while Democrats can only count on 40. And while Republicans only need to win five of the purple states, Democrats would need to win 11 But Republicans are losing their grip on those purple states because of the very policies that make them popular in red states. Backing a president with an approval rating this low won't help Republicans either. It won't be easy for Democrats to win the Senate in 2020, but it can be done. And Democrats have a plan B in case they don't win the Senate. There's a fair chance that a Democratic president and a Democratic House would find themselves up against a Republican Senate led by Mitch McConnell. Many of the Democratic presidential hopefuls, uh, to borrow from Elizabeth Warren, have a plan for that. They plan to, if necessary, go around McConnell and his gang. They're considering executive orders and even emergency declarations to address gun violence, immigration, and a host of other issues. Democrats in these circumstances would appear to have little choice if they hope to carry out their plan to restore all of the Obama orders that Trump has removed and to reverse most of Trump's executive orders. Quoting McConnell, if I'm still the majority leader in the Senate, think of me as the grim reaper. None of that stuff's going to pass. He continued, I guarantee you that if I'm the last man standing and I'm still the majority leader, it ain't happening. I can promise you. The Democratic presidential candidates, meanwhile, already have plans for their first hundred days on jobs, the environment, political ethics rules, police abuse, and a breakup of oversized companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Today's question is not what's in your wallet, but who is in your wallet. Personal data has been compromised for more than 100 million Capital One credit card customers and applicants throughout North America. The hacker stole 80,000 bank account numbers and 140,000 social security numbers. But in Canada, 1 million social insurance numbers were stolen. Capital One says it doesn't appear that any of the data was used to commit fraud nor was it sold to those who would.
Capital One says it will spend $150 million to pay for credit monitoring for the customers affected, and it has apologized, saying it's deeply sorry. In a twist from the usual, an actual suspect is already in custody. She is 33-year-old Paige Thompson, a Seattle software engineer formerly employed by Amazon Web Services. An avid hacker, Thompson left a trail online for investigators to follow, even messaging at one point, dropping Capital One's docs and admitting it. Investigators identified Thompson as their suspect after she posted a veterinarian's invoice that included her name. Thompson allegedly found that the firewall for Capital One's part of the Amazon cloud had been misconfigured, allowing her in. It was bragging about it online that got her arrested. North Korea fired off two more short-range ballistic missiles yesterday, our time, both missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead. The missiles reached an altitude of 18 miles before splashing into the ocean 155 miles northeast of a North Korean coastal launch site. One of the two missiles the North had launched last week flew 267 miles, the other 430 miles, splashing down right in between North Korea and Japan. All four missiles were launched without notice. It's been barely a month since Kim Jong-un met briefly with Trump at the demilitarized zone. Experts say Kim's firing off missiles to get the attention of China, Japan, South Korea, and of course the U.S. They say Kim views the missiles as leverage to get normalized relations with other countries and to get negotiations on the subject of weapons and security. And the Trump administration further provoked Iran yesterday by imposing new sanctions on Iran's foreign minister. The next move is Iran's. Missed us by that much. Ice on fire and don't run from a rooster in the final segment after this. This is the part where I set out the tip jar. At such a crucial time in our history, you're listening because you know the importance of honest, independent journalism and how important it is to support it. I'd be very grateful if you'd stop by my webpage, buzzburbank.com, and click that gold donate button, which helps cover expenses for research, equipment, and supplies. You'll find Fandango buttons and other useful stuff there, too. Your support is what keeps this newscast going, keeping it independent and free for the listening. If you're able, you can do as others have done and schedule a regular monthly donation or just kick in something when you can. On your desktop browser, that gold donate button's on the upper right at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just above the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. Thank you to those of you who support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Ice on fire. 100 fires in the Arctic, as reported here last week, as the planet gets warmer, especially at its polar ice caps. This week, those fires continue to burn across the Arctic and farther north than usual, the fires jumping from the forests to the peat. That's concerning because while an Arctic forest fire usually burns itself out in just a few hours, peat burns for weeks. When peat burns, it releases huge amounts of carbon. Record amounts of carbon dioxide are being released into the atmosphere, which will lead to more global warming and more wildfires even in the Arctic. The Arctic fires are now releasing as much CO2 as the nation of Belgium. The lack of trees because of the fires will now only expose more peat to the sunlight, also warming the planet. And it's not just the Arctic. Wildfires are also raging in Alaska, Greenland, and across Siberia. Meanwhile, in the Amazon, you can't see the rainforest for the bulldozers. 
For a little while, Brazil was the world's leader at fighting deforestation. That was good, since the Amazon rainforest is vital to the health of the entire planet. Scientists say that without tropical rainforests, there's no solving the climate crisis. But Brazil has now elected its own Donald Trump, or at least a man who's nearly stopped the crackdown on illegal logging, ranching, and mining. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has even himself been fined for violating environmental rules. He believes the rainforest stands in the way of progress and economic growth in Brazil, so he's opened up those lands for commercial use. What could possibly go wrong? Well, more than 1,300 square miles of forest land have vanished since Bolsonaro took office at the start of this year. Deforestation on his watch is already up nearly 40%. 80% more rainforest land was removed in June of this year than was removed in June of last year. 80% more. And the enforcement of the remaining environmental regulations in Brazil has dropped 20%. The world has made known its concern about what's happening in Brazil, to which the country's Trumpian president replied, The Amazon is ours, not yours. On the brighter side, Ethiopia, under a national initiative, has planted more than 350,000 trees in just 12 hours. And that brings us to Trump himself, who's been trying to roll back the reduction of vehicle emissions through higher gas mileage as scheduled by the Obama administration. Because Obama. And because the fossil fuel industry Trump covets would make much less money under the Obama plan because it wouldn't sell as much gasoline. But California and 13 other states have decided to stick with the Obama timetable for cutting these planet-warming fumes, no matter what Trump does. And if the vehicle makers hope to sell cars in those 14 states, and they do, they will follow the state's rules, not Trump's. The car makers didn't like the rollback to begin with, knowing it would have to answer to California, which, as a state, has the sixth biggest economy among the world's nations. And Ford, VW, Honda, and BMW were in no mood to build two models of every vehicle, one for the 14 environmentally conscious states and another for Trump land. Trump's forging ahead with the rollback. Within a couple of weeks, he'll require only 37 miles per gallon instead of the 54 miles per gallon the Obama plan would have netted. Environmentalists and car companies were on the same side, taking a stand against Trump and the oil industry. But with this new deal between 14 states and leaders in the car industry, it doesn't really matter much what Trump does. In a skirmish between environmentally conscious states and Trump land, Trump land lost. The planet did experience an unexpected close call late last week. An asteroid big enough to qualify as a city killer zipped by Earth last Thursday, and astronomers noticed it too late for Earthlings to have taken any defensive action. Imagine a baseball whizzing by your ear so closely you can hear the wind whistle. That's how close the asteroid came to this planet. It would have struck with the force of 10 megatons of TNT. It would have struck with the force of a large nuclear weapon. It wasn't detected because we can only detect asteroids big enough to wipe out, say, dinosaurs. The city killer asteroid won't likely come our way again. It's on what's described as an erratic orbit around the sun, while the Earth's orbit is far more stable. Small wonder so many people drink. But there's a new concerning trend with alcohol, and it's not about the kids this time. A new study shows that while binge drinking is still a thing for college students, it's now also a thing for senior citizens. 
Binging is defined as four to five drinks in a single setting or a two-hour period. More than one in ten older adults binge drink, even though the effects of alcohol are more pronounced in older people. With diabetes, blood pressure issues, and a higher tendency to take a fall, seniors who binge drink are shortening their lives. And some of the seniors are binging on both alcohol and marijuana, which is a lot stronger than it was in 1970, making a fall even more likely. A House subcommittee is accusing Juul of intentionally targeting children as young as eight in its bid to become the biggest e-cig maker in the U.S. The panel on economic and consumer policy is part of Elijah Cummings' House Oversight Committee, and it's been investigating Juul's advertising practices. What it found was a sophisticated program to go into schools to talk directly to children, primarily young teenagers and preteens. It found that Juul had paid schools at least $10,000 each to have the kids in for a bit on weekend programs and even during school hours, including summer school. In one case, Jewel paid $134,000 for a five-week summer camp for 80 students with a program the lawmakers call eerily similar to the ones run by big cigarette companies. The investigation showed that Jewel had hired an ad agency to develop the curriculum to develop nearly 300 social media influencers in New York and L.A., and to try to get at least 30,000 social media followers. Quoting Jewel, our company has no higher priority than fighting underage use. Quentin Tarantino does not hold the top movie spot this week, but he has topped the openings of all of his other iconic movies. Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opened with over $40 million, besting the opening for Inglorious Bastards, The Hateful Eight, Reservoir Dogs, and Pulp Fiction. No, The Lion King was again king of the box office with $76 million in ticket sales in its second week of release. Once Upon a Time was second, Spider-Man Far From Home was third, and Toy Story 4 was fourth. Get your tickets here. Click the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. This is the week that Minnie Mouse died. Voice actor Russie Taylor died in Glendale, California over the weekend at the age of 75. For more than 30 years, She's voiced the various incarnations of Mickey's girlfriend in movies, TV shows, and on the theme park rides. You didn't know her name, and Russie Taylor was okay with that. The characters I do are famous, she said, and that's fine for me. And in case you're wondering, Minnie and Mickey finally did get married. In 1991, Ms. Taylor married Wayne Allwine, the actor who had voiced Mickey Mouse since 1977. Allwine died 10 years ago. Minnie and Mickey are together again. The toddler climbed over the suitcases on a constantly moving obstacle course. He tunneled his way through the bag screener x-ray and was carried up a chute where he landed in the arms of TSA agents who were assigned to inspect baggage. The little boy's hand was injured in his wild ride on a luggage conveyor belt that started at the Spirit Airlines check-in desk at Atlanta's Hartsfield International Airport. The boy's mother said she had only looked away for a second to print her boarding pass. 1,300 people clashed in the Ontario city of Kenora. They clashed because they were all wearing various forms of plaid in a radio station's attempt to break the Guinness World Record for the most people gathered wearing plaid. City officials got excited. We're not just going to win, said the mayor. We're going to smash the record. The mayor was right. 
1,359 people showed up in plaid, breaking the old record set inside Atlanta's Georgia Dome, where just over 1,100 people in plaid showed up. People clashed there, too. Some clowns set off a brawl on a cruise ship. It happened during the late-night buffet on board the Britannia on its way back to England from Norway. A passenger in a clown suit showed up and got into a fight in which six people were injured, including a crew member and three women. Quoting a British reporter, passengers used furniture and plates as weapons. There was blood everywhere, he says. A couple in their 40s was arrested. The guy in the clown suit says he was upset because no one in his party was ever told that the late-night buffet was black tie only. For better or worse, they think they've found a way to keep the homeless people away from the waterfront lake pavilion, the pride of West Palm Beach, Florida. That pavilion hosts weddings and other events, and the mayor says city workers are tired of cleaning up the feces. Classical music didn't drive away the people living on the steps of that venue. Maybe this will. The outdoor speakers now only play Baby Shark, and the toddler hit Raining Tacos over and over again. Chaos erupted at Miami's Mammoth Cave National Park. Law enforcement responded early Sunday morning to the report of a person with a gun at one of the park's campsite shots had been fired. They found the armed man who says he was shooting at Bigfoot. Finally, the mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas, says something has to be done about the rooster that chases and attacks pedestrians There have been complaints, and the city council is planning to pass a new ordinance about it this month. He attacks and scratches, says Mayor Jan Larson, who declared it would be all right if you were young enough you could kick him. But she says some people are older and could fall, adding, we can't let people get hurt because of an errant rooster. But a poultry management specialist at the University of Arkansas says some breeds can be aggressive. Her advice, don't run from the rooster. It only encourages him to chase you. Quoting her, you just kind of try to be bigger than him and not back down. Which may be good advice for dealing with more than just a rooster. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.